All right. Well, um, who never asks anyone for help? Did you find out anyone there who never asks anyone for help? We're all, we all do ask people for help. Um, what sorts of things are we asking for help with? Jump starting a car. Jump starting a car. Getting pulled out of the car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when, when, no, I'm no, I'm saying, <laughs> when, when I'm cooking, I'm always calling my mum. <laughs> Should I put this in? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, very good. Very good. Well, um, uh, we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to help us uh, tonight. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we do pray that you might ask, uh, you might help us tonight. Uh, please speak to us. Please show us your mercy and your grace. Amen. Well, where do you go for help in times of need? Where do you go? When your phone goes flat, who are you going to ask for a charger? Are you going to ask a baby boomer? Or are you going to ask someone from Gen Z? Of course we know who we're going to ask. When you catch COVID and you're struggling to breathe, where are you going for help? Are you going to go to the source Whole Foods shop on the roundabout at Forsyth Street? Or are you going to go to the hospital? Maybe you don't want to see those um, people just yet. Um, Maybe in a few years' time. Uh, What about when you don't understand that assignment that's due in a couple of days' time? Are you going to go here? My assignment help. I hope none of you know this place. Well, we do now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because people do know whether you've been there or not. Um, Are you going to go there when you need help with that assignment or are you going to go and talk to a lecturer? Now, um, it's funny that Seb mentions getting bogged. Because when Seb does get bogged out at Unoni, where is is he going to go for help? Is he going to go to Romy? Or to Lily? In our weaknesses, in our struggles with sin, where do we go for help? In our greatest need, to appease an angry God who is angered by our sin when we need forgiveness, where do we go? We go to Jesus, our great high priest. To get right with God, we need a mediator. We need a priest to go before God, to represent us to God. And Jesus is qualified as our great high priest because of who he is and what he has done. Jesus is the divine son of God. Jesus is the human priest who's offered his life as an atonement for sin to save us and to represent us before God. So we come to this point in Hebrews. Uh, At the end of chapter four here, we're at a transition point. The first four chapters have been about Jesus, the son of God that he's better than the angels, that he's better than Moses and Joshua, uh, that we'd better listen to him and trust him and obey him so we can enter his rest. And then in chapters 5 to 10, in the last couple of verses of chapter 4, it it starts a new section about Jesus, our high priest. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be uh, looking at those chapters 
And we'll say that Jesus is better than the old priesthood of Israel. That Jesus is better than the sacrifices that those priests offered. And that we'd better continue anchoring our souls to him in all faith and repentance and perseverance so that we might enter our eternal home in the resurrection to come. So as we begin this new section on Jesus, our great high priest, what is it that makes him so great? What qualifies him to be our high priest that we can come to him when we are in need? What is it about Jesus that means that we can hang in there? Well, come and have a look with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Verse 14 tells us, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What makes Jesus so great a high priest? Well, he has passed through the heavens. Our last session, uh, if you can remember back that far, we looked at the book of Leviticus and uh, it introduced to us priests and their importance as being mediators between a holy God and sinful mankind. And the high priest in the Old Testament would enter the little room in the middle of the tabernacle um, once a year. You might remember this picture here with the, the tabernacle and, and this special tent in the middle here. And uh, in the, there's one room called the holy place and a second room called the most holy place. And the high priest would enter that tiny little room right in the middle once a year and he would offer sacrifice for the sin of people. He would offer it up on uh, the atonement cover there. He would atone for our sin and bring forgiveness. We need a priest to mediate between a holy God and sinful people. Now, what makes Jesus a better high priest is that he did what no other priest could do. He passed through the heavens. He entered into the real heavenly temple, the one that that Old Testament temple was merely a symbol of. So as Jesus defeated death when he burst out of his tomb three days later after his crucifixion, he ascended into heaven 40 days later to sit at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Uh, we saw that back in chapter 1 of Hebrews in verse 3, that Jesus ascended and he sat and he's sitting right now at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there Jesus lives today in the presence of God to plead our case to act as our advocate, to atone for our sin. That's what makes Jesus a better high priest. He passed through the heavens. He is the exalted and divine son of God. And that makes him our great high priest. Yet despite his, his transcendence and his holiness, he understands us. So in verse 15, we keep reading, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So the high and lofty Son of God understands what it's like to be human. The human condition of weakness and weariness. All that is dark and difficult in life, from physical sufferings to relational troubles, the, the grief and sadness in a world that is ravished by sin and death. Jesus experienced that too. Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of Jesus in this way. 
He says, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected by men. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. And like us, he faced temptation to sin. Verse 15 tells us, in every way as we are. But I wonder if you're thinking, yeah, but was he really? Was Jesus really tempted in every way as we are? Really? He didn't have the internet, so you know, he can't really know the temptation of online porn. He was a man, so he can't really understand what it's like to be a woman. He wasn't married, and so he can't know the temptations involved with that. Can Jesus really say that? Yet through all of the wide-ranging experiences of men and women in history lies the common root of temptation. Things like power and wealth, comfort, selfishness. All these things uh, underlie all of the temptations that we face. So in the life of Jesus, he experienced all of these temptations. Uh, You might remember um, Jesus being led out into the desert by um, the, the spirit and he meets the devil out there and the devil tempts him with all of those kinds of things, with power and wealth and comfort. Because Jesus can relate to us, it means that we can come to him for sympathy, for compassion when we are tempted. He understands us. Yes, he is the high and lofty, exalted son of God, but he understands us. Uh, Back in chapter 2 of Hebrews, uh, this is what we read. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. That is to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Isn't that great? Jesus can understand us. He knows what it's like to be human. And that makes him a great high priest. As we continue into chapter 5, we see the, um, uh, the parallels going on between the human high priests of the Old Testament and, and Jesus. And we see why he's even better. And so what qualifies Jesus to be our great high priest here in chapter 5 is that he has been appointed by God for this very task. So in verses 1 to 4, we see that the priests in the Old Testament were appointed to this task to represent sinful people to God. So chapter 5, verse 1 says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. No one takes this honour on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest. Jesus waited patiently for his turn to be the high priest 
He didn't grasp for it, but he waited until he was called, until God appointed him at the right time in history. Now, in the verses that follow, we see that Jesus' appointment by God is to two public offices in the Old Testament. Uh, The two offices I'm talking about there are the king and the priest. So the author turns to two psalms in the Old Testament to make his point, to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, and brings them together to make the point that Jesus is both king and priest. So verse 5, join me there again. In the same way, Christ, um, that is the Messiah or the king, he did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, So God exalted him, God appointed him. Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have become your father. But not just that one place, because have a look at verse 6. God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father, also says in another place, in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So God said to, to Jesus, the Christ, you are my son. And you are a priest forever. Now, Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. The son in Psalm 2 is a royal title. God's son there is the king, the Christ, the Messiah, who will rule the nations with justice and righteousness. And Psalm 110 speaks about a priest, not just any old priest, but an eternal priest. Someone who will always be there to represent sinful people before God. And so what we see happening here in Hebrews is both of these figures are being brought together in Jesus. And together they qualify him to be our great high priest. God's son, the king, is also the eternal high priest. Then in verses 7 to 10 we find a final reason why Jesus makes such a great high priest... His obedience to God. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, with the high and exalted and enthroned divine son of God, although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And in these verses, we're drawn into the drama of Jesus' final hours before he was crucified. Where he fully knew the suffering that was laying ahead of him in the hours uh, to come as he was hung on that cross. The Gospel of Luke records that as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that his tears were like drops of blood. Matthew records in his Gospel Jesus saying, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. My soul is swelled up in sorrow to the point of death. And Jesus then prayed three times, Father, spare me from this. But not my will, but yours be done. 
The stress and sorrow Jesus experienced was real. And he learnt firsthand what it meant, what it was like to obey God in the midst of great suffering. He learned obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. It wasn't that Jesus didn't know how to obey. Of course, he knew how to obey. But as he suffered, he learned what it was like to obey God in suffering to the point of death. And what this meant was that Jesus was the right man for the job. He was the perfect person to be the source of our salvation, to make atonement for our sin and to live forever as our representative. So this is what makes Jesus such a great high priest. He passed through the heavens. He understands us. And he has been eternally appointed by God for this very thing. And what this means for us is two things. There are two ways that we are exhorted, that we are strongly urged and encouraged in light of Jesus being our great high priest. The first is there in verse 14. We're urged to hold fast to our confession. And the second is in verse 16, to boldly approach the throne of grace. So verse 14, let us hold fast. Because Jesus is our great high priest appointed by God, he is our only hope of being right with God. There is no salvation, no cure for sin apart from Jesus. And so wouldn't it be a disaster to let go of our hope? to let go of our confession that Jesus is the divine and royal Son of God, our great high priest. One of the threats that the original Jewish hearers um, that received this, um, uh, this message, uh, what they um, were, uh, were threatened with was that after they heard the gospel, after they heard the good news of Jesus, his resurrection from the dead, Um, for the forgiveness of their sins. After they heard that gospel and they put their trust in him, uh, trust in Jesus, their Messiah, they were tempted to turn back to their Jewish religion, uh, to reject Jesus. But there is no salvation in their old ways because their priests, their sacrifices, their temple were only symbols pointing to Jesus, our great high priest. Um, We'll get into that a bit more over the coming weeks. Um, <clears throat> but you know, while we're not tempted today, uh, like they were back then, to go back to Old Testament Judaism, uh, perhaps we are tempted in other ways to loosen our grip on Jesus because our life is just so comfortable. Because perhaps it's Jesus' commands just ask too much of me in this world. Maybe it's because there are so many other things competing for our time and our hearts. So that what Jesus has done for us, his loud cries and tears and prayers as he went to the cross, are just not really that precious to us anymore. They've lost their shine. Maybe we're tempted to loosen our grip on Jesus. So friends, hear the word of God to you tonight. Hold fast to the confession of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, the source of our eternal salvation. As Jesus stands representing us before his Father, now his Father doesn't see us covered in our sin and our shame. When God looks at us, he sees his Son. He sees us clothed and covered in his righteousness and not with our sin. We are spotless and blameless before our Father in Jesus, our great high priest. And wouldn't it be devastating to loosen our grip on him? Our second exhortation tonight comes from verse 16. The high and exalted divine Son of God who has passed through the heavens, who understands each one of us, Verse 16 says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Now, our confidence in coming before God in our time of need doesn't come from thinking, you know, I'll be fine because I'm a pretty good person. It comes because of Christ Jesus, our great high priest, Because of his death for us. Because he has atoned for our sin. And because he sits on that throne forever and lives to eternally intercede on our behalf. We don't come before that throne trembling or in fear. Like we might when we're busted for doing something wrong. And we have to front up to an unsympathetic judge. Or a volatile parent. We come before the throne of one who loves us and has died for us. And whose very self is full of compassion and mercy and grace. So approach this throne of grace with confidence and boldness through our great high priest. And as we come before this throne of God through Jesus, we won't be treated as our sin deserves. We'll be shown mercy and not punishment because Jesus has already atoned for sin. And rather, we will be shown grace. We'll be lavished with good gifts from our loving Heavenly Father. He will help us in times of need. He will comfort us. He will give us strength. He will help us to hang in there. When you feel like your battle with sin is too hard... When it feels too difficult to stop watching that dodgy Netflix show, even mid-series. When it feels impossible to stop thinking hate-fueled thoughts about that person or about myself. When sinful pleasure is more attractive than Jesus' call to holiness. When the temptation and seduction of the world feels too much. Come to Jesus And find mercy and grace and help. We have a great high priest who sympathises. Whose name is love. Who lives forever and pleads for us. We're going to sing about that in a little bit. But uh, before we do, um, I'm going to have some questions. And uh, we enter this new section about the high priest. Um, I wonder if you've got some questions for me. You can fill them in online if you um, 
Uh, or send me a message if you're viewing online and I can uh, follow up with you through the week. Um, otherwise, you can follow the QR code and uh, you can leave a question there. Um, uh, but for now, does anyone have any questions that they'd like to ask? Sarah? What is the order of Melchizedek? Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, have a look at the next verse. Um, chapter 5, verse 11. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you've become too lazy to understand. Um, it's a bit harsh, isn't it? Um, we're going to come back to Melchizedek in a couple of weeks. Because in chapter 7, the whole chapter is devoted to Melchizedek. And, uh, and in Hebrews, the, um, the author is just taking a little sidetrack to say, hold on to that question. That's a good question to have, but you're not ready to hear the answer yet. And so uh, I think you're ready to hear the answer, Sarah, but uh, we'll hold off in a couple of weeks um, for that one. <laughs> He's a bit of a slippery character, this Melchizedek. But we'll... We'll find him in a couple of weeks. Karis? Um, thank you, Steve. I think as Christians, we often think about approaching the throne when we pray. We often say, like, let's approach our, our God now. Mm. Um, are there other ways we do that in the Christian life? And, sh like, should there be other ways we think about, like, how we practically approach the throne during just day-to-day -day life? Mm. Yeah, thanks, Karis. Um, so the question is... Uh, we generally think about um, approaching the throne of grace as something we do in prayer. Um, but are there um, other ways that we might do that through the week? Um, uh, that's a great question. Um, I think um, uh, I think what we see is uh, we. I think it is talking about prayer um, here is the way that we we do that. Um, we are in the presence of God as he lives in us and as Jesus um, is our representative and we're united to Christ in him. Um, and so uh, I think a lot of the time we don't um, visualise what is actually happening as we do pray. Uh, and so um, what I think is really, what well, way we can do it is we might not even think about it through the week. It's just as we are communing with God, as we are reading his word and um, and meditating, thinking about scripture through the week um, on things that we've, we've read. Uh, and as we go about our day and we are in a conversation with God and praying to him, um, uh, you know, just a small prayer, you know, God, please, please help me as I go into this difficult situation. Um, we might not uh, visualise that we are going into the throne room of God there at that point, but we actually are. And so um, uh, Jesus is there forever. Um, representing us and so we are there permanently in him and uh, and so I think that that does just shape the whole way we go about our life um, uh, knowing this this beautiful amazing thing is going on that we can't see but we know it is and, uh, and I think that should cause us to want to um, yeah to speak to God uh, throughout the day um, in little ways and in more uh, bigger in-depth ways as well. Yeah. Maggie, what do you got for us? Um, I might have missed it, but I was 
Yep. Yeah, so in verses 8 and 9, it speaks about Jesus learning obedience and being perfected. Um, as we read that, it, it, it makes us think that, oh, was there a time when Jesus was disobedient? Was there a time when he wasn't perfect? Um, because that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Um, but one of the things that Mark, um, uh, the tools that Mark gave us as we think about uh, how do we understand these kind of conflicting things is to, to think about the difference between um, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And so who Jesus is, well, he is uh, the obedient son uh, eternally. And he is perfect eternally. He'd cease to be God uh, if that were the case. And so that is who Jesus is in his, um, uh, in his essence, in his... Uh, eternal nature but in becoming human and this is where we then think about well what did Jesus do well as he came um, you know when Jesus was born there were things that he wasn't able to do as a human um, which doesn't make him any less God you know he wasn't able to tie his shoelace when he came out of the womb and so would you say oh look you know he's not really much of a human then or um, you know he, how, how could he be God and not tie his shoelace um, uh, but what, what it is that Jesus did is that as he, uh, he knew right from the start that he was going to be facing the cross. And, uh, and particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane where we're drawn into there in those verses, we see the great suffering that he went through. And the obedience that Jesus learned there was what it's like to be a human facing all of the temptation that we face, uh, yet still saying, not my will, but your will be done. And so uh, um, it's talking about his experience of being human where he learned what it was like to obey God in suffering. Um, we get a, a similar um, thing happening in Philippians chapter 2 uh, about he learned obedience there. Um, where he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, and so it's not a strange thing that's happening in here in, in Hebrews. It happens. We see it there as well. And so it's talking about um, uh, or showing in Jesus' humanity um, that he, the things that he learned there meant that he was then going to be the perfect person to be the source of our salvation. And so in verse 9 there where it talks about after he was perfected, it's a similar idea. It's not that he was imperfect, but he became uh, the, the perfect person for the job. Um, you know, uh, Seb gets bogged out of the Unionian and he goes, oh, I know the perfect person to get me out of, out of this mess. Um, and so it's, it's talking about uh, that perfection word there is talking, it's, it's a, um, this qualifies the person to get, uh, to do the job. Um, so that's what it's talking about. Thanks, Maggie. All right, friends, well, I might uh, call it there. Let us um, pray, and as I pray, maybe our musicians would like to come up and uh, we will then uh, reflect and respond to God in song. So let us pray. Uh, loving Father, we approach your throne of grace tonight through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, your Son. 
Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he went through the ordeal of the cross to atone for our sin and became the source of our eternal salvation. Thank you for your never-ceasing love, for the way you deal gently with us who are ignorant and going astray. Help us to hold fast to him and to approach your throne of grace with boldness and confidence so that we may find grace and mercy to help us in our times of need. Amen.